Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming through the rain on this um, evening. I am so delighted with our guest who's going to be talking to us tonight. Um, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had Nick Cave, the rock star here. We had a really interesting and surprising evening. Tomorrow we have a comedy night. So we are really catering to all tastes here at the Unheard Club. But um, how come you picked the boring evening to come? <laughs> That it definitely will not be. Um, Dr. Ian McGilchrist is someone we have been trying to persuade to leave his beautiful home in Sky and come to the uh, metropolis to talk to us. And we finally succeeded. Um, he is, as many of you will know, a neuroscientist turned philosopher. Can, um, can I call you that? You can call me what you like. Um, <laughs> an extraordinary breadth of interest. He studied literature uh, at to uh, uh, Oxford, where he began his academic career. He's a fellow of All Souls, um, and he's written a series of extraordinary books. Um, he kind of rose to stardom with a book called uh, The Master and His Emissary, um, which set out his central thesis, which is what we'll be talking about tonight, um, and has followed up with um, a very substantial and very profound um, two-volume book uh, called The Matter with Things, which I very strongly recommend. Um, it is absolutely worth the effort, and that's really what we're going to talk about today. If any of you have copies, I'm sure Ian would be happy to sign them afterwards. Let's begin what I'm sure you have been asked many times, which is to sort of start with the basic assumption for us. Many people here will will know more than that, but for those of them mm. who don't, yes. um, tell us about the two hemispheres of the brain mm. and how they each have a different perception of the world. Um, this is a, a difficult topic because um, people either know something that is entirely wrong or know that the whole subject is wrong. And so it's very difficult to uh, get people to listen, um, or was initially, but I'm very glad to say that I've carried the day um, with a lot of people. Um, many of you, if you don't know my work, will think if you know anything about hemisphere difference, that the left hemisphere is rather rather boring but reliable it's um like a decent accountant it keeps good records but it's not actually great company and the right hemisphere is this um, flighty thing that is given to fits of passion <laughs> and painting and, and this is not uh, a good way to think about it at all um there were some conclusions drawn from some early 
procedures in which the brain was split. There's a band of fibers at the base of the brain that joins these two hemispheres, a bit like a walnut, called the corpus callosum. And for certain people who had intractable epilepsy, a curable condition it became when they were able to divide the two hemispheres one from another, so that if there was an electrical storm, if you like to think of it that way, in one hemisphere, it didn't spread to the other, so the person was able to remain conscious and carry on functioning. And after that, um, there were a lot of rather interesting experiments that could be done. You could address things purely to one hemisphere or to the other. And on the back of that, the sort of myth that I mentioned grew up. And between the 70s and the 90s, people experimented more and more, and they found that, in fact, all these cliches were completely wrong. And so they gave the whole thing up as a bad job. But I'd like to suggest that that was dogmatic and premature. First of all, the brain consists only in making connections. It's lots and lots and lots, billions of neurons, nerve cells that connect, and its power consists in the connections. So why would nature have um, endowed us with a brain that is had a whopping divide down the middle with just a small connection between the two? That's the first thing. The second is that the brain is asymmetrical. Why would it be asymmetrical? The skull is not asymmetrical. The world around us doesn't divide neatly into a left world and a right world. So why would the brain? And the third, which was something I discovered in medical school, was that this corpus callosum, this connecting band, spent at least half its time, if not more, sending messages to the other hemisphere, you keep out of this, I'm dealing with it. So it wasn't so much necessarily facilitating as inhibiting. And, and just as an aside, primates have more inhibitory neurons than any other mammal, and humans have more inhibitory neurons than any primate. In fact, about 19% of the human brain consists in inhibitory neurons, which would take us somewhere that we may or may not go, which is the important part that resistance negation plays in creation. Anyway, there we are. So that's the first problem. And then I started to look at the literature, and I was fortunate enough to come across a colleague who'd been working in that area for 20 years, John Cutting. And um, effectively, what he had found is that there were significant differences, but they didn't follow the map, you know, reason and language, um, emotion and pictures, for example because it's quite true that both are involved in both. But they are each of them involved in all those things, in everything that they do, in a different way. So it was not about the what, but about the how. You see what I mean? And that actually turns out to be very, very important. So they each contribute to reason and language and emotion and so on. And the left hemisphere is not, you know, unbiased and, and, and unemotional. It's actually prone to anger and aggression. Um, it's very far, far from being calm. It also tends to jump to conclusions more than the right hemisphere, which Ramachandran, a great neuroscientist, has called the devil's advocate. Anyway, what my research is over 30 years and my collaboration with John Cutting in the initial phases of that reveal is that these two manners of being in the world, that these hemispheres bring for us are to do with the way in which we attend. Now, that may not sound very exciting, 
In fact, when I first realized that the basic thing here was attention, the penny didn't immediately drop. Attention, it could be memory, it could be, you know, calculation, it could be anything. What's special about attention? Well, the answer is that attention is actually how our world comes into being. We can only know the world we experience, and how we experience that world depends fundamentally on the type of attention. So if you attend to something in one way, you see one thing. If you see it attend in another, you see something quite different. And I sometimes talk about a mountain behind my house. Um, I live at a place called Talisker on the sky, which is not actually where the whiskey is made. It's nearby. Um, they, they try to keep it out of my reach. Um, it's, uh, four miles away. But um, it's called that because it's from a Norse uh, word, Talisker, which means the sloping rock. Now, what that tells you is this mountain, which is a very extraordinary mountain, it has this sloping silhouette from the sea. So what one knows is to the Vikings a thousand years ago, what that mountain meant was safety or danger, because it, it alerted them to the fact that they were in a very treacherous piece of water there, and the bay was full of rocks. But we also know there were Picts living there a thousand years earlier than that. And they have their brocks, the ruins of their brocks are still there. And to them, this mountain offered both shelter and was the home of the gods. Then in the 18th century, people started visiting Scotland to draw it and the, see the beauty and the sublime landscape. And so for them, this mountain was a, a, a many-colored, many-textured form of great beauty. And in the 19th century, people got much more interested in geology for the first time. And it happens to be an extraordinarily good example of columnar basalt formation, the same as it is, in fact, in line with the Giant's Causeway in Ireland. And so it's part of the same formation. To somebody who wanted to mine basalt, this, is, this mountain means money, money, dollars. Um, to a physicist, what it is, is 99.99% nothing. And in the other 0.01%, we don't really know what's going on. Now, which of these is the real mountain? Which of those is the real mountain? They are all real mountains. They just depend on the way in which and the goals with which we approach it. Everybody sees what they are interested in finding and the way they attend makes all the difference. So basically, attention helps shape the world. And these two kinds of attention came about for an evolutionarily important uh, reason. I should say that it's not just the human brain that is asymmetrical. Um, all the brains of all the creatures we've looked at, birds, reptiles, amphibians, insects, um, they all have ganglia or prototype brains that are distinct left and right and asymmetrical. And even the oldest extant organism Nematostella vectensis, 700 million years old, off the Isle of Wight, where it blends in very well with the average age of the community. It, it, is, um, it has a, an asymmetrical neural network, and it's been described as the origin of the mammalian brain. So there's something there that seems to involve all living things that requires this asymmetry. What was it? It's that Every creature has to solve this conundrum. How can I eat and yet stay alive? Now, that doesn't sound difficult to you. But if you think back for most of history, 
a creature has to be able to target something and follow it with its eyes and get it very accurately. And to do that, it has a very narrow attention. But if that's the only attention it's paying, it won't last very long because it won't see the predator overhead. It won't see its mate and its offspring that also need feeding. So there needs to be two kinds of attention and so different are these kinds of attention that they can only come about by having two centers of awareness. And the left hemisphere has this very narrow beam, perhaps three degrees out of the 360, targeted on a detail you can see very precisely. It fixes it and it grabs it. And it, the left hemisphere controls the right hand with which most of us do the grabbing and the getting. Whereas the right hemisphere has this broad, open, sustained, vigilant attention, which is on the lookout for everything else without preconception. So on the one hand, you've got an attention that produces a world of tiny fragments that don't seem connected to one another, a bit here, a bit there, a bit elsewhere, that are decontextualized, that are um, disembodied, abstract, become examples of a category of things, and are fixed by the stare of the left hemisphere. So you've got these static, fixed, known, familiar bits and pieces. Oh, it's one of those, that's what I eat. Oh, it's one of those, and so on. Whereas, with the right hemisphere, we see that nothing really is completely separated from everything else, or indeed from anything else, ultimately. That all is, at some level, seamlessly interconnected, that it's flowing and changing rather than fixed and static, that everything is what it is because of the context it finds itself in, that embodiment is essential to the nature of what we're looking at, both our looking and the thing we're looking at, um, that there are unique individuals, that it's not just person, but it's Sue or Fred or whatever it is. Um, those distinctions, the uniqueness, is something the right hemisphere sees, but the left hemisphere sees just an example of something it uses and needs. The left hemisphere's world is thus a lifeless, literally inanimate kind of a world, and the right hemisphere is one, an animate one. And you can, in fact, now uh, temporarily disable one hemisphere at a time in an experimental subject completely painlessly. And when you do that, you find that the left hemisphere sees things that are animate as mechanisms. When you have the right hemisphere alone functioning, it sees things that you would normally think of as inanimate as alive. So the sun is alive. It's moving across the heavens. It's giving warmth. So these are very, very fundamentally different ways of looking at things. And the last thing I'm going to say is that, and again, this may not strike you as so fundamental, but believe me, it is is the right hemisphere sees things as they come into being for us. I, I use the term presence, they presence to us, which is a term philosophers use translating Heidegger's uh, Anwesen. And what he was getting at was that things are not just given static there, but they come about for us as we look at them and pay attention to them, and we see more what they are, they become what they are for us. And that's not to say that it's all made up by our minds. It's not as simple as that, nor is it that there's just a world out there and it's completely passive. There is an interrelationship between our minds and the world that is all the time constructing it. The right hemisphere is aware of this and is part of it. The left hemisphere sees representations, which literally means present again after it's no longer present. 
the, the right hemisphere's world is the world in which we live. The left hemisphere's world is, if you like, a map, a schema, a diagram, a theory, something mm. two-dimensional. And it's got none of the richness that's in the right hemisphere's world. There's nothing wrong with that because actually a map is very useful and a map doesn't get more useful by including more and more detail about the names of the people who live in the houses and the plants they grow in the garden. No, a map to be useful has to be selective and that's how it is. So we've got this one world which is composed of things that are mechanical, useful, inanimate, reducible to their parts, abstracted, decontextualized, dead and another world which is flowing complex living changing and has all the qualities that make life worth living for us thank you <laughs> that's a that's a wonderful uh explanation um let me, now, I I mean, I would, let me let me ask you now to do a, another 300 pages in three minutes yes, um, yes, yes. which is these two modes of uh, attending mm. um have with them accompanying kind of um, philosophies, accompanying ways of seeing the yes, world. Yes. And your thesis seems to be that not just as individuals, but as a whole society um, mm -hmm. recently, mm -hmm. and I'm keen to know how, how long that you think that's been true for, mm -hmm. have become overly dependent on the left hemisphere mm -hmm. or giving the left hemisphere too much attention too much power in mm. shaping the world as we understand it and have neglected this wiser yes. hemisphere that as the the master in his emissary that the book I mentioned hints at should actually be in charge yes. and using the left hemisphere. So tell us how, how this has happened sort of as wide as a society. How can it be that yes. we start using one more than the other? Yes, I mean, the title of the Master's Emissary refers to the idea of a, 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 a much wiser master who has a servant who thinks he knows everything, but because he doesn't really know very much, he thinks he's got it all. But the, the wiser master knows that he needs a lot of work to be done, administrative work by the emissary. So you're quite right. The right hemisphere, things work well. There's vast amounts of evidence to this. As long as the left hemisphere is carrying out work it's deputed to do by the right hemisphere, rather like we use a computer. The computer doesn't really understand the data we draw from the complexity of life. That's not its job. Its job is to process it very fast and hand us back some data, which we then take back into the world and make sense of. But what seems to happen in civilizations and in the second half of the master and his emissary, I trace our Western history from the Roman, the Greeks rather, through the Romans to the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, the Industrial Revolution, Modernism, and Postmodernism. And what I think I can show is that in two previous cases, the Greek and the Roman civilization began with a sudden outburst of flourishing in which the two worked very well together. And then over time, it got more and more towards the left hemisphere's point of view. And partly, I think this is because civilizations tend to overreach themselves. They tend to um, amass an empire, and then everything has to be administered, and there are rules and procedures, and everything is rolled out under a bureaucracy. And what this privilege is, is a simple uh, sequential analytic way of understanding, rather than the more complex holistic understanding that is required and is provided by the right hemisphere. So to come to where we are now, 
what I think happened was the Renaissance was this sudden flowering in which, and it's not about the humanities versus the sciences. Neither, by the way, is it true that the humanities are somehow right hemisphere and science is somehow left hemisphere. Good science, good reasoning involves the right hemisphere as much as the left. But what happened was there was great steps forward in so many aspects of life, a great richness. And then towards the end of the 17th century, becoming much stronger in the 18th century, was a sense that science had solved all the problems, and we were beginning to understand how to control everything ourselves. Unfortunately, the kind of thinking that gets drawn into that is also rather simple-minded, and it therefore doesn't see what it is it doesn't see. And I think that's where we've got to, is that we've trusted a way of systematizing, rationalizing, and we believe that if we just had a little bit more power, which is the raison d'etre of the left hemisphere to grasp, to get. If only we could do a bit more manipulation, we would solve everything. But at the same time, we're making an unholy mess of the world in so many respects. We're destroying nature, we're destroying humanity, really. We're just certainly destroying this civilization, as though we're sort of taking a sledgehammer to it. And so this is a very sad outcome for this know-it-all left hemisphere. One of the reasons I think it's become, well, there are several reasons why I think it's become uh, more potent. Um, one is that, of course, it's the one that makes you rich. It's the one with which you do the grabbing and getting, and that's easy and straightforward. Another is that it's much easier to explain the left hemisphere's point of view. It's money for old rope to say, well, look, if we do this, it leads to that, leads to that. Whereas actually what the right hemisphere is seeing is a complex system, which is different from a complicated system. A jet engine is a complicated system, but it's not a complex system. A complex system is one in which is inherently unpredictable. It's not disorderly, but it's not determined. And it has recursive loops within it so that things become enormously complex. You don't have this A leads to B leads to C. And another is that when you start to articulate what it is your civilization is about rather than getting on with it, once you start openly analyzing it, then you lead more and more to this left hemisphere point of view. And A.N. Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, who I consider one of the all-time greatest philosophers, and certainly of the last hundred years, said, a civilization flourishes until it starts to analyze itself. And that's remarkable because Whitehead was a mathematician and a physicist. And he was the co-author with Bertrand Russell of Principia Mathematica. But he was able to see beyond. He was able to see limitations of science, limitations of reason, which is not to disrespect science or reason. I happen to believe our science is not scientific enough, too dogmatic. I happen to believe our reason is not reasonable enough, too dogmatic. And it's dogma that's always the problem. We need science. We need reason. But we also need to see that they can't answer all our questions. You know, love is very real. Anyone who's experienced it knows that it's one of the realest things that can happen to you. But according to science, for it to be real, you've got to be able to see it in the lab, measure it, manipulate it. You cannot do that. And then you start thinking about all the other amazing things that we experience, goodness and beauty and love and all those sort of things come under this head. 
So there are proper limits to science, proper limits to reason. Music, wonderful, can change your life. But it's just notes. You know, what is a note? Absolutely nothing. Well, let's have another one then. Still nothing. Let's have 30,000. 30,000 nothings go to make up Bach's B minor mass, which can be one of the most powerful things you can hear. How did that happen? By amalgamating so many nothings. It's because it's all in relation. It's all in relationships. And what I'm suggesting is that relationships are primary. They're even primary to the things that are related. The things that are related, what we call the things we notice, only become what they are because of the relationships they stand in. So you, you, you started us off with the enlightenment there. Yes. Um, is that, that's the, where it all went wrong then, is it? I mean, it, it feels like even in just the past five years, the world is more dogmatic. Oh, yeah. More, as it were, left brain. It's accelerated. So do you, the chronology then, is it just gradually more and more left brained and then more and more so? Or are there particular points and are we in one at the moment where it's suddenly speed, speeded up? Well, I mean, how long have we got? But I mean, put it very simply, there have been movements back and forward. So there have been corrections at various times. And after the Enlightenment came Romanticism, which and the name Romantic sort of seems to mean that it's not serious or important. But in fact, the thinking and the art that came out of it is very great indeed. And so there was a correction, but then the power of the Industrial Revolution um, led to this machine-like way of thinking about living things, and we've never really lost that. And although there are great artists in modernism and postmodernism, it's interesting that ways of seeing the world that normally would only happen to somebody who had a, an injury in the right hemisphere start to be represented in the visual arts in the 20th century. I mean, it's just a fact. I'm not saying it's all rubbish. I'm just saying things that we would not normally experience unless we were not using our right hemisphere start to be visualized. And, and there's a wonderful book called Madness and Modernism about this topic, how 20 or 30 types of things you find in schizophrenia are now happening and are being portrayed in our culture. And it's not that we've all got schizophrenia. Of course we haven't. But what I think it is, is we're all neglecting the right hemisphere. And if you like, Schizophrenia is a case in which the left hemisphere has gone into overdrive and the right hemisphere has been wound down or is not really being listened to. And this leads to delusions and hallucinations. I think we are now in a world which is fully deluded. Um, we're all fairly reasonable people, I imagine, in this room, but now it's quite common to hear people say, and for them to be, to go completely unchallenged, Things that everybody knows are completely impossible. They don't have any science behind them and no reason. They're flat contrary to experience. Such, such as? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so there are aspects of our culture that have become very vociferous um, and very irrational. Do you think that? And very dogmatic and very hubristic. This is right, and anyone who says other is wrong. And that is, that's the way the left hemisphere likes to be. It's cut and dry, black and white. But the right hemisphere sees nuances, gradations, mm. that there's good and bad in almost everything. So, so do you think we have ever been in as left hemisphere dominated a moment as we are now? Or is this? No, no, I think this is, 
this is unhitherto seen. Um, do you think technology has something to do with that? I mean, yes, you talk I think about how it's a, a representation. We now literally look at a representation in screen form every day. It yes. feels like we are further and further removed from a kind of intuitive present experience of the world. Do you, do you think that could be part of it? I think it definitely is. Um, physics a very long time ago, at least a hundred years ago, learnt that the universe was not, as Newton had described it, a, a vast mechanism. It didn't have any of the features of a machine. And um, unfortunately, biology was a lot slower in catching up with this. So you had the rather extraordinary position where the science of the inanimate showed a universe that had to um, be perceived in a consciousness. And the science of the animate world suggested that we were all just machines and consciousness didn't exist. I think that's beginning to shift. Um, now, there are very hopeful signs that biologists are beginning to see that it's far more complicated than that and the machine model doesn't work. But that has left a legacy that only somebody who thinks in this mechanical way is being rational. And I'd like to make a distinction, by the way, between what I would call a sort of rationalistic approach to something and being reasonable. Being reasonable was something I remember from when I was growing up. There were reasonable people and they were admired. And the idea of an education was to make you reasonable. But now that has been supplanted by something quite different, which is a rationalizing framework such as a computer could follow. So we've been pushed by the development of our machines, the increasing sophistication of our machines, the intoxicating feeling that we have power over the world, into viewing it in this reductionist, materialist way. And the trouble with power is that it's only as good as the wisdom of the person who wields it. And I don't notice that we're getting wiser. In fact, I think that would be an understatement. So it's rather like putting machine guns in the hands of toddlers and then hoping there's going to be a happy outcome. Hmm. So this, so we're not living in an age of reason, after all. Um, is that fair? It's absolutely yeah. fair. We're living in an age of rationalizing and reductionism in which everything can be taken apart and it's just the bit. Hmm. And yet it feels like the the people in charge whoever they are, whether it's the, in charge of the culture or in charge of the media or in charge of the political institutions, um, are very committed to this rationalist framework. Mm. Um, and reading your book, The Matter With Things, I was just continually reminded of what we come across in the day-to-day -day political conversation, mm. which is an absolute insistence that a particular mechanistic world mm. is the only option and and those people who take a different view or mm. don't sign up to whatever the current precept mm. is are considered mm. you know outcasts yes um yes. do you recognize that in the in the more kind of day-to-day -day political world as well do you think mm. do you think we can learn from your mm. framework when just reading the paper or watching mm. the news do you think we need to be remembering ian mcgilchrist and thinking this is left brain stuff, block it out. <laughs> I, I hope people will um, apply these ideas. I find that people spontaneously do in all walks of life, which is very uh, pleasing to find out. But yes, I do think that. And I suppose there was an almost equivalent period, it was very short lived of Puritanism, 
when, you know, it was absolutely not tolerated for you to disagree with a certain way of thinking, which was, in fact, a very dogmatic, reduced, abstracted way of thinking. Um, but I think at that point, we hadn't reached the stage that we're at now, very obviously, where it's it's harder and harder to articulate what very much needs to be articulated. Because at that time in history, people lived close to nature. Almost everybody was surrounded by nature. Um, most people belonged to an inherited culture, a coherent culture, which also involved a religious element. Um, and art had not been turned into something conceptual, but was visceral and moving. And religion had not been presented as something that only a fool or an infant would believe in. And these are all very arrogant positions that we now hold. But what I'm saying is that those things, proximity to nature, to the place where you live and the people you live with, a culture, some sense of something beyond this realm, which is important. It might be religious or it might just be spiritual. We know that these things are the key to human flourishing. They, they make people healthier, both physically and mentally, if they have this um, uh, context in which to live. And we've done away with that. And so now all we're left with is public debate about things. And it's very easy for somebody to say, well, you've just contradicted yourself. But in fact, if you're onto the truth, at some reality, at some level of reality, you will contradict yourself. Because there's something called the coincidence of opposites, which I have a whole chapter on, and it's foundational, I think, to my view of the cosmos, is that if you push farther and farther in one direction, you don't get farther and farther away from the thing you hope to flee. You start finding that you're approaching it again. Like in Alice, where she was told to walk away from the door if she wanted to go into it. <laughs> and this is where we now are, that we think, oh, this was good, so let's have more and more and more of it. Let's have more and more freedom of a certain kind. That, in history, has always ended in tyranny. Things lead to that opposite if pushed far enough. We need to be harmonious in our thinking. We need to be balanced. We need to have some equilibrium to our thought, and we don't at the moment. Those people who do dissent from this rationalist framework are often demonized as kooks or worse. Yes. Um, and you see it all the time. It's a very heretical and big thought that they may actually be the wiser ones in our society. Um, how, how should we think about that? You know, that those, the, the people in charge who are so kind of sneering often at people who either because of a religious belief or because of the, they don't sign up to whatever the, mm. the current thing is, um, you know, they, they suffer a kind of mm. oh, yeah. a, a, a great deal. I'm just wondering, mm. how, do, how can we distinguish between those alternative voices mm. that are actually wise versus the ones that are kooks? Well, I was going to say, yes, I mean, the first thing is that just um, having a differing point of view doesn't mean you're necessarily wise. You mm. could be kooky, um, and some are, but nonetheless, I think those who are wise do have a position far different from the one that is now instilled in us in schools and and through the media and so forth, which is, in fact, a very impoverished vision of life. It's lost all its beauty, its richness its complexity, and become very simple, sterile, repellent. 
And so um, I think if we could begin to suspend our judgment that somebody who differs from this is automatically wrong and listen to what they have to say, we'd be making steps forward. I would say that a civilization cannot thrive if differing points of view cannot be heard. Hannah Arendt, one of the, again, greatest philosophers of the last hundred years, who was herself a German Jew and experienced Nazism, said that once something can't be said, you are already in a tyranny. So it is indisputable that we are all now living in Britain in 2023 in a tyranny because there are people who say you can't say these things and there will be terrible consequences if you do. And you know what I mean. Let's talk about science a little bit. Um, you, you have a, a big section on um, science and in particular how, although you're a big advocate, of course, of science and are a scientist. I'm a scientist. Um, you feel like it's taken a wrong turn. Um, when does science become scientism? When it quite simply says that it can answer all our questions. Um, but that a moment's reflection shows that there are so many things that are important in our life that science can't fully explain to us the beauty of a rainbow, of a, a wonderful landscape, of a piece of music, its importance and meaning, which is very real. It's not irrational or unscientific. It's just beyond the grasp of science and reason. Now, it's illogical, irrational, and itself unscientific to suppose that science can answer all our questions. Science is only supposed to admit things which can be proved to be the case, but it cannot be proved to be the case that science can answer all our questions. It's not a scientific assumption. It's an assumption of faith, and scientism is a faith. Much as I would say there are fundamentalist religious, who I very much regret, and there are fundamentalist atheists, who I regret just as much, I think the reasonable person is somebody who has an open mind and it's only by opening your mind that you experience what it was you were missing before you can't it's rather like um, a figure of, of, of fun in in um in in earlier philosophy called simplicius who wants to learn to swim and so he just sits on the bank and he reads about how you swim but in fact you can't learn how to swim until you get into the water so actually, to understand many of these things, you have to behave at least as if, for the time being, you're willing to be part of it. And then you find out what it is that you didn't see before. And at the moment, we are just too rigid. And science is has become dogmatic. For example, for a long time, it's been saying there cannot be fields of form. I mean, in a, in a way, uh, Rupert Sheldrake has been the, the person who has promoted this idea. And he has always been rigorously empirical. He's always said, look, here are experiments you can do, carry them out. And if he says that to dogmatic scientists, some of whose names begin with D, they say, um, we don't need to do the experiment because we know it's wrong. Now, that is not science. That is the opposite of science. So now we are discovering that there are fields of form that are important in physics and are probably the explanation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast for how organisms are aware of a form. You see, we thought that once we decoded DNA, we'd found everything in there, but it's just a strip, as it were. And where in that do you find the exact position of something in the brain that is a nucleus that has... No, it's a form. And if you cut something off a certain organism, it will regrow to that form. Now, I don't know the answer to where this is, but what I like to think is... I was a representative of a science that was interested in all the possibilities in testing them and looking and finding out, not just sh shutting one's mind and saying, bah, 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 no, 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 can't be. And that's where we are. I well, know. I think that's the worst of science. I think, you know, there are good scientists and there are now at last good life scientists, biologists who are, who are being imaginative and seeing these things and talking in a much more holistic way about things. And um, they've got a long way to go yet to catch up with physics. So I find that the most, the scientists who are most interested in my work are actually physicists. Uh, lots of them have written to me out of the blue and said it's absolutely fascinating what you say, because these two different ways, if you like to give a simple taste of this, are uh, rather like the differences between the wave and the particle. The one is, you know, specifiable here exactly at this moment in time. And the other is actually existent over a broader area and is not Certainly specifiable. Mm. You had a, a appendix in um, the first volume um, entitled Why We Should Be Skeptical of Public Science. Oh, yeah. Um, which went into some examples of and this clearly was was um, annoying you that there's actually there are well, the, the way public science is conducted. Um, well, you tell us. Yes. What's your. I mean, public science is, is not. A, the same target as science. Public science is run by administrators, and they have various uh, bees in their bonnet that we should all do this and do that and do the other in order to be healthy. And usually when you come to examine the science, 
is much more complicated than that and often doesn't support the position at all. There's also a problem with the idea of, I mean, I wish I had time to explain all these things, but with the idea of peer review. And peer review is the sort of basic idea of science. You send it to another scientist, what do they think about it? There are all kinds of pitfalls in this. It can be corrupt and it cannot happen at all. And there are journals that will publish for a fee. And a lot of them now have come into being. They're called predatory journals. In order to survive as a scientist and have a career, you have to have published. One of the problems for many scientists is finding anyone who's willing to publish what they've done. Um, and there are now journals, a lot of them based in China, I regret to report, that solicit articles and will basically publish anything as long as you pay them to publish it. So that's not how science should work. And there's an amusing example of um, there's a man, a computer, um, um, computer scientist in Australia called Peter Van Pleur, I think, who was annoyed by constant solicitations from the International um, Academic Study of Computer Science or something like this. And so um, he, he wrote to them finally, he'd asked them to take him off their mailing list. He submitted a paper, which was called, Take Me Off Your Fucking Mailing List. And the paper was seven pages long and consisted only of the sentence, take me off your fucking mailing list, repeated to the end of the paper. It also had a diagram in it, a flow diagram with little circles leading with arrows, take me off. And uh, it, it was brilliant. And he was flabbergasted to discover that the journal wrote to him and said that his paper had been peer reviewed and accepted for publication uh, on a fee, which he declined to pay. Um, but this is, I mean, that's an extreme example, but there's an awful lot of this now eating in. You'd be very credulous to believe that everything that you read that is said to be science is science. But this is a problem of living. You know, intuition is a very important faculty. We've been now being programmed into distrusting. And in fact, that's made us as stupid as we are. A lot of the really stupid things that we now seem to believe, a sort of mass delusion, would never have come about if we'd used our intuition. But intuition can be fallible. Absolutely. Reason can be fallible. One way of describing schizophrenia is, and this has been said more than once by people who didn't know that they said this, that the madman is not somebody who's lost his reason. It's the person who's lost everything but his reason. And in other words, leads by causation chains to uh, uh, conclusions that are logically possible, but to anyone who actually lives experientially, they're not likely. For example, there are voices in the room and there's nobody there. So it must be coming from the electricity socket or from the neighbors or from outer space. But most of us don't think like that because as well as having a, a chain of reasoning, we also have a faculty of reasonable judgment based on experience that says, well, this is extraordinarily unlikely on what I know, and this is more likely. Mm. So uh, I'm not, um, I'm not attacking science. I'm just saying that science is not immune from all the problems that go with being a human being. It's practiced by humans with all their their greed, their ambitiousness, and so forth, competitiveness. And so it's a minefield. You have to use your discrimination. You have to do a lot of hard work. You know, when people say something, look it up. I spent 30 years looking up things that people said were true and finding out how evidence-based they were.
the worlds you describe has gone, it would seem, very wrong. And it almost seems bewildering how to set about fixing it. Mm. Um, you know, you have moved to um, the Isle of Skye. Mm. Um, you know, everybody's it, followed me, unfortunately. unfortunately you were saying <laughs> that the, the tourists have followed you. But, you know, do you have hope that this can be fixed, that this civilization can be righted? Uh, or do you think now it's the time just to sort of withdraw and hope for the best or wait for some new civilizational cycle or something? I mean, is it worth fighting every day to try and fix it? I think it is. Um, but in order to do that effectively, you have to see what's happening. And I think, if I may say so, that for many people, what has opened their eyes to what is happening is reading my work. Because they, once they've read it, they see what's happening everywhere. They see these patterns forming. And it's therefore easier to see what you need to push back against. I think it is possible that we may survive. I think it's extremely unlikely that this civilization will survive. But most civilizations have not lasted for more than a few hundred years. So we're just seeing parts of what happens. I think life will go on, but it won't be life as we know it. It's very unlikely to be. But why should we privilege that? We've had that gift for a while. None of us is going to live forever, I'm sorry to tell you. We're only here for a while, and we enjoy the gift we've been given, and then the world moves on, and something else will come, and they will have their gifts and their problems. So something will survive, possibly some of us human beings will survive, and I think that if they were able to gather together in small communities, small enough to trust one another, because trust is crucial here, and you can't trust when you're in a... A, a, a virtual sphere of billions of people. Um, trust is the most important thing for a civilization. They can trust one another, honorably work together towards, with much simpler needs, closer to the earth, not the extravagant and fantasy kind of lives that we now lead. What can we do now? Well, there's a whole lot of things, really. I mean, we can begin the work of limiting the damage we do to nature, and that's, of course, the obvious one, and there's um, underway in, in, in many very good organizations and human beings in, in the world today. But I think we also need to reestablish some sense of who we are and what we're doing here. And I think that although we've got all this power and, you know, machines that can quote think, they can't think at all. They can process information extremely rapidly. Um, we, we, we're not really wise. And one of my answers to when, what people say, what should we do is pray. And um, by that, I don't mean, as Heidegger said, only a God can save us now. I don't mean that God will suddenly come down and with his divine hand sort everything out and it'll all be okay. That's not going to happen. But what I mean is that if we adopted a different, less arrogant, less hubristic attitude to the world, if we incorporated some sense of the limitations to what we know and can do, if we had some humility, we had rekindled in ourselves a sense of awe and wonder before what is still there in this beautiful world. And with it brought some compassion to our relations with other people, not shouting them down, vilifying them, 
um, telling them they're frightful because they disagree with them, reasonably talking and saying, okay, you disagree with me. I'm interested. Explain your point of view. And then there should be a discussion. So we've become capable of rescuing the mess that we've got into. But what we mustn't do is follow the strident, shrieking voices, whatever they may be saying. That is a wonderful moment to take a pause. If uh, the way to save the world is to gather in small groups uh, and <laughs> talk openly in an atmosphere of trust without uh, judgment, that is what we're trying to do, all of us right now. Um, we'll take a 50-minute pause. The bar is open and uh, questions afterwards. I've been following your YouTube videos just since I, I booked this uh, evening. And they've been amazing with Alex. I've got up to 25. And what strikes me uh, about you is that you're an esotericist, or in my view, 100%, which is totally consistent with also being a scientist. It's totally what? Consistent. Totally consistent with also being a scientist. I'm not uh, quite hearing. Esotericist as well as a scientist. Or, and he's just saying that's compatible or incompatible. Okay. I think you're 100% yeah. esotericist, which I think is totally compatible with yeah. being yeah. A, a scientist. And I think that shines through in, in those videos and shines through in three. Um, Should we get him to respond to that idea or is there a... No. The, the question which I want to... I, I, I'm just... I'm just so thrilled right, yeah. that you're in the world because because of that esoteric aspect. Because oh. I, I don't think there's many okay. of us as 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 I think um, okay. um, Freddie's observed. The thing, so I think there is a, the, on the on the esoteric aspect. I think there is um, you you, the, you know the key which which establishes your credentials. In my view, is is your statement of the uh, that that consciousness and matter are the same things. And there's no temporal aspect. All right. Well, shall I address yeah. that? Let's yeah. let him address that because we've got to get lots of questions. Big, thank okay, you. Well, that, exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, oh well, it's with, well, I'm sure too, too bad. Out, you? <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> We're going to be quite fierce on questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, straight uh, in with a question, end with a question mark, and off we'll go. Yeah. Right. Doctor McGill, Chris. Um, Consciousness uh, and matter. Well, that's a, an easy one. Um, <laughs> uh, as you know. I hold consciousness to be an ontological primitive. That is to say, it is not derived from anything else, but is, as it were, a primary constituent of the cosmos. I don't think that consciousness is somehow secreted by the brain. I believe it is in everything. I am a panpsychist, which is not at all an unusual position for philosophers these days, even in the West. Um, and I'm also a panentheist, as it happens, uh, but we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> um, and matter, I think, is a phase of consciousness. And when I say phase, I don't mean a temporal phase. I mean a physical phase, as in water has phases. In one, it's ice. In another, it's flowing. In another, it's just dispersed in the atmosphere. So um, people say, well, matter doesn't look like consciousness. Well, no, but what's dispersed in this room doesn't look like a river or a lump of ice. But they have different qualities, but it's the same material, if you like to put it that way. Thank you. I mean, I just don't like the word esotericist because it's, it's conflated with all kinds of uh, sort of woo-woo. And one thing I am not is woo-woo. But on the other hand, I am very open to the insights of mystical traditions, East and West. What I'd actually like to ask a very simple question, but it may not be as simple. Uh, it depends how you answer it. How do you listen to music? Great. Love simple question. What was it? 
How do you listen to music? Uh, with my ears? I mean, uh, um, I don't didn't get what you're getting at. Well, um, what I'm interested in is um, we have to live with both sides of the brain um, yes. all the time. Yes. Um, you're obviously very keen on music. Hmm. And I just wondered how you approach it, how you get yeah. now what I what what I guess I would say is that there is musical form, you're aware of a tradition, you have knowledge of instrumentation, yeah. maybe you have knowledge of the forms. Yeah. And is the right brain therefore the bit that gives you the tickle in your ear? And if so, how do you okay. how do you approach that? Well, um there's no need to sort of approach it consciously and analytically because it's an it's a whole intuitive experience hearing music to which we as a whole respond including our whole body never mind bits of our brain um as you possibly know in most people who are not professional musicians most of music is appreciable principally by the right hemisphere that's to say melody and harmony and the only bit that the left hemisphere um seems to get uh, generally is rhythm but even complex rhythms, syncopations and so on, are better processed by the right hemisphere. It's an interesting observation that music has progressed, if one can use that word in the context, to something which is largely rhythm without melody or harmony. So that's what I'd say. Um, one simply appreciates it with one's whole brain. I think one can get caught up in the idea that somehow each brain is isolatedly hearing one thing. And it, it, no, because there's communication between the two hemispheres. The sound is coming all around to, to both ears. It's like a conversation just had with a lady about sight. I mean, it's not a rigorous split that's going on here. I'm talking about something at a higher level about the way in which the world is put together by each hemisphere. And that's demonstrably different. If you isolate one hemisphere at a time, you find a different personality with different preferences. So it's no question about that. I know there's a lady here at the front um, who happens to be my sister-in-law. Uh, question. I just want to ask, is there a difference between the male and female brain? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? Um, oh, gosh. Mm. This, this one always comes up. And the trouble is that to answer it in a sensitive way and not set up a lot of hairs, I'd have to spend quite a lot of time answering it. Um, if I try to put it very simply, I think the, it's certainly not true at all that the right hemisphere is somehow female and the left hemisphere male. If anything, the opposite. So, for example, what's established beyond doubt is that women's excellence in skills is often linguistic. Whereas for men, they may be much less linguistic, but more able to manipulate things in space, uh, visual and spatial manipulation. Um, and that is a right hemisphere um, property, largely, and linguistic fluency is largely a left hemisphere um, property. And in utero, it is testosterone that causes the right hemisphere to expand. I could go on and on and on. Um, in fact, the right hemisphere is bigger than the left, as I often say, but that's almost entirely due to the influence of males who have bigger right hemispheres than left. Women's hemispheres are more similar to one another. And that takes me to the, I suppose, the point I was going to make, which is that 
I think it's pretty indisputable that that male brains are more specialized the left and right, whereas in female brains there's more overlap between the left and right. So there's more of the right about the left and more of the left about the right than there is in a man. And this has the consequence that if you have a stroke in a certain place in a woman, she's more likely to be able to recover using another part of the other hemisphere than is a man. And I think that because from an evolutionary point of view, women are absolutely essential. And they're the ones that carry on the species. And men are somewhat dispensable. I mean, they can be experimented with by nature. And so you get men who are very extreme left hemisphere or very extreme right hemisphere. And don't forget that all those mathematicians and so on are great mathematicians because of their right hemisphere, not because of their left. The left hemisphere is good at calculation, can carry out procedures, but actually the business of doing maths and so on is very right hemisphere. So um, it's a complicated picture, but that's probably the most I want to say about it right now. Neither is better, it's just different ways of being, yeah. Great. Let's go to, towards the back of the room, shall we? Uh, thinking about your saying that we're move, how we're moving towards the left, do you think that it has anything to do also with language and speech? We were talking, I remember in a podcast you do with Sam Harris, you're saying speech comes from the left side of the brain. And so speech inherently has to be limiting and break things down. Uh, in order to communicate. I mean, Roger Scruton wrote us on effing the ineffable, which of course yes. you can't do. So mm -hmm. is there anything to that, the fact that we have language that it starts progressing our brains towards the left side? Yes, it's undoubtedly one of the big developments of the human brain is, is language in general and speech. And Speech in most right-handers, 97%, is in the left hemisphere. Um, in the case of left-handers, it's 60% in the left hemisphere, 40% in the right hemisphere. But I don't think we should get overexcited about that. The point that you're making, I think, is that the business of being able to articulate something in language requires a certain degree of um, analysis and categorization. And that the really important things in life don't lend themselves to this process and are famously ineffable. I mean, the divine, um, love, um, music, all these things I keep coming back to, um, the experience of beauty. These things are enormously limited if one tries to do them in language, unless the language is poetry. And I see poetry as the way of language undercutting itself, of as it were, outwitting language to do something that an ordinary language can't do. And the interesting thing about poetry is that it's very much right hemisphere dependent because it involves all this explicit, sorry, implicit um, things like metaphors for a start and, and tone and associations of ideas and so on. The right hemisphere is much better at this. The left hemisphere can read a repair manual for a lawnmower. No. Uh, but you know what I mean? There's a difference between certain kinds of language. But broadly speaking, if your point was that something very important happened to the brain with the advent of language and particularly speech, then that's right. And it has favored the left hemisphere over the right. And so a left hemisphere dominated culture will could see a decline in 
literature, in poetry, in imagery, and I, th I think in, in, in general, creativity in general, because it's so dependent on the ability to hold many things together that may not even look like they they gel until and not collapsing them too soon into a certainty. The left hemisphere wants to know what this is, and we know from accounts of creativity. But the important thing is not to say, oh, I see what it is, because as soon as you've done that, you've plonked it into a left hemisphere box with a little label on it. You have to actually resist that and allow the thing to come into being, and then it will be a true poem, not just a piece of verse, as it were. Thank you. Um, there's some questions over here, a little bit further this way. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to understand this idea that we're living in a left hemisphere dominated world. Um, how do you relate that to inter recent intellectual history? So you could argue that for over 50 years now, we've rejected this age of reason. I mean, if you look at you know, Heidegger's existentialism, post-structuralism, all these things reject systematizing boxing and doesn't leave anything in its place. But I mean, surely we're seeing the inverse within intellectual history. It's not left hemisphere dominated, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to see any hole in anything. Well, you may or may not be right, but as you know, you may be a professional philosopher, that um, Western philosophy departments are almost exclusively populated by people who follow so-called Anglo-American analytic philosophy, and they, they laugh at um, Heidegger and so forth. But Heidegger was, I think, um, somebody who was trying to articulate things that the right hemisphere sees. The postmodern thing is a disaster. It's basically collapsing into, oh, there is nothing really there. We make it all up. And the, the two things that I am rejecting are that we make it all up or that we have no part in making what it is. One is naive idealism. The other is naive realism. And actually what is happening is, I keep saying this, a relationship. So it's what our brain, our consciousness better does when it meets whatever it's experiencing that brings about reality. So I accept that in um, intellectual history, there has been a shift away from that narrowly analytic way of thinking. Um, and that, but I say that's only in, in pockets within academe. And what is much commoner is this um, cod post-structuralism or post-modernism that uh, anything goes because everything's equally true. Well, if everything's equally true, why don't we all just cut our throats now? I don't think so at all. I, I believe there is such a thing as a truer view, a truer pronouncement. But it's not that there's something out there that we have to get to by a chain of reasoning. It's something that we have to feel our way towards and have a sense of, and then it comes more and more into being. It's a responsive, relational thing. And you know when you're onto a path that is somehow succeeding in approaching the truth. But you can never be certain about it. So it's always up for grabs. There aren't any rules for defining what exactly is true. You see, because we so idolize rules and procedures, we think if there aren't rules and procedures for something, then it can't really be real. But all the really real things are not susceptible to this proceduralization. I was just having a conversation with a young man who's studying at Durham at the moment, and uh, I, I, I just hinted in what we were saying, that one of the problems with universities now, as with schools, as with the medical profession, um, and with the whole of life, is the 
sudden explosion of bureaucratic procedures and thinking. There are manuals and manuals that you're supposed to read and observe and follow. And then we're surprised that professionals who are skilled people who have learned things through experience want to leave the profession because they're effed off with the, the general tenor of the way in which they're treated by managers who've never been teachers or doctors or whatever. I mean, I had a very, very distinguished colleague who was a bit of a mentor of mine, the, the professor of neuropsychiatry at the Maudsley, and he was queried by a manager about why he'd sent a patient for a scan. And he said, when I have to explain to a manager why I've sent a patient to a scan, it's time for me to leave the profession. And he did. And the people who really taught me knew what was what, and they, they communicated a fire to me which was the gift. It wasn't information. But if they'd had to fill out all these questionnaires and be subject to guidance and rules and so on, they just have said, no, forget it. I'm going to retire and cultivate my garden. So, you, up to you. Yeah. There's a... <clears throat> Hello. Um, could we say, rather, <clears throat> rather worry, worryingly, that we're living in a world where the very reasons for doubting are doubted and there is this crusade for certitude. Absolutely. And, and by the way, that is entirely part of the hypothesis I'm putting forward because one of the first things that differentiates the hemispheres is the left hemisphere has to have certainty. There's a famous picture used by Wittgenstein, which is actually taken from a Victorian children's comic, which shows either a, a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you look at it. And the, the right hemisphere is able to hold those together without collapsing them, but the left hemisphere is unable to. It's like either this is a duck or it's a rabbit. What do you mean? And it's, that's its attitude. It's cut and dried to everything. It's black and white thinking, dogma, cut and dried thinking, unnuanced thinking, the craving for certainty that lies behind our problems now. And that is exactly an expression of the left hemisphere's mode of being in this world. Whereas the right hemisphere, I think I may have mentioned this, is the devil's advocate. It was so called by Ramachandran, a very great neuroscientist. It's the one that says, yeah, but maybe not. And if only we had more of that voice saying, yeah, but maybe not, let's have another look. We wouldn't be in the mess we're in. I'm just going to abuse the chair for one second and ask a follow-up question. Not not this chair. But <laughs> <it's involved. laughs> um, just because I feel like the, the one area that we haven't spent much time on is what a lot of the volume two of the Massive Things is mm. about, which is more the sort of spiritual, I suppose, or the, the sense of the sacred. Um, and here we are, we're 40 metres from Westminster Abbey. Mm. We're going to have a strange coronation yeah. ceremony there in, in two weeks' time. Mm. Um, do you think part of this must be part of the story, mustn't it? That mm. um, that need for certainty is is also an insecurity because there is an absence where which religion used to fill in some way. I mean, how do we yes. how do we understand that in a, in a big picture? I think to some extent, although I would say that any religion that peddled certainties was not a religion, properly mm. speaking. It was a, a dogma or a doctrine, which might or might not be right. But most of the great um, 
theological thinkers and mystics have emphasized this, not that there's no reality about it, they're very clear that there is, but not that there is a single way of thinking about this or realizing it or seeing it. Everybody has to make their own way there. And although you say there's this sense of the sacred in the part three, it's actually one chapter, the last chapter. I, I, I put that there at the end because I thought if people have followed me this far, they're going to see the point because a lot of people will just be put off by the mention of, you know, the sacred or the divine. What? This guy's some sort of freaky face head. Um, I, if I may reassure you, I, I wouldn't like to say exactly what I believe in religious terms, but what I definitely believe is that the great religions, all of them, and the great mystical traditions of Buddhism and Taoism and, and so on, have central truths that they hold in common, and that these are a kind of wisdom that are not appreciated unless one is brought up in a tradition that helps one see them. And our tradition is dead against seeing them. So it's much simpler just to say, oh, it's all nonsense, because I can't see any of this, I can't measure any of it, but I don't think that that is reasonable. I'd be much more cautious mm. and say that on a matter of experience, those who have experience of such a realm, and I think I do, in no, you know, no voices or supernormal or anything, but just in my appreciation of the world since I was a young person, the, the beauty of it, it spoke to me and still speaks to me of something beyond this realm. When I first heard the great polyphony of the Renaissance, I thought this is not, it is intellectual, yes, it can move the emotions, yes, but it's not primarily either intellectual or emotional. In fact, it's spiritual. Um, thank you for, my, for the talk, very interesting. There is no shortage today of, you know, apps teaching you mindfulness. I was wondering if you could have any examples of, say, practices that would focus on this right brain thinking, how should I call it, mind halfness or something like that? And I'm aware it's a dumb question because you're trying to do a gestalt switch. You're not trying to just give a body of content. Mm. You have this, do that. But I'm curious when you think about it. <laughs> no, it's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, well, I mean, it, you really answered it, that one of the procedures, one of the ritual practices that one could have would be mindfulness. And I believe it is extremely valuable. And effectively, what it is doing is recruiting the right hemisphere's attention to the world in a peaceful and deep way, while silencing the chattering left hemisphere, which, as you know, in that literature is referred to as monkey mind. We're always rushing to verbalize, to judge things, instead of actually allowing them to declare themselves fully. And in the, um, the matter with things, I do quote a long passage from um, a Buddhist monk who is considered an authority on on mindfulness and i quote this fairly short passage and indicate 23 things in it which indicate a right hemisphere preference over a left one so i think that is a valuable practice thank you but also uh, you know allowing one's mind to to be free to and pay proper attention to music not just have it on in the background to sort of make you feel karma i mean good music can disturb as well and can bring very deep and and profound feelings to to open oneself to poetry to make a habit of reading good poetry listening to good music 
um, you know, uh, appreciating a walk in nature, just being aware of one's surroundings. And then one finds there are good things there, despite the overall picture that I'm afraid I've given, which is somewhat, well, I think it's just realistic, really, that we can't go on as we are. I think everyone knows that. But we can do what we can. And those sort of things are personal things we can do. And there are other things we can do for society in general. I share your belief that basically um, science, like if you say that science could answer all your questions or like could possibly answer all our questions in the future, it's anti-scientific. But also on the other hand, as like I also study medicine. So for me, it's also difficult because my intuition is that science cannot answer all the questions in the future. But on the other hand, I think it's also also rational that you believe because science has answered so many questions that in the future it might also be able to answer questions that we cannot yet believe that it's going to be able to answer. So what I'm yes, saying is yes, yes. what I'm always wondering, because also I don't want to um, like by my fellow students and by uh, sci scientists, I'm always regarded when I have these, I don't know, yes. views that you are sharing. I'm always regarded as this mm. woo-woo person. And I'm like, yes. how am I supposed to respond to that? And what would you in the practical world <laughs> suggest to young people who are trying to be scientists? How, how should you proceed yes. to be regarded as a scientist and not as a woo-woo person? Yes. Kind of combine these two hemispheres again, you know? That you are uh, seen as you believe in that light is simply a proof of what I'm saying about the culture. But I do also know from many, many young people, and I'm very pleased that a lot of the people who listen to me and talk to me and write to me are young people. And they see there's something profoundly missing in the version of the world that's given to them. And I know a lot of these people are in the medical profession as well. I have a lot of extremely humane colleagues who realize the value of the somewhat mechanistic science that we have. And I'm not saying it has no value. Absolutely not. I'm just saying it's by no means the full picture. It's a small part of the picture. And as to whether or not science can ever explain certain things, I would say not unless one expanded the meaning of science to include things that science at the moment doesn't allow itself to include. So it would be a word game. Can I ask a follow-up question? The thing is, what I'm like, I, I think it, it might be possible also scientifically for example, that an artificial intelligence like, comu like a computer nowadays is able to, Dostoevsky was also talking about it in his books, like maybe there's going to be a machine that if I give in all my information, tells me what I should do. And that's like kind of scientifically co correct. Yeah. But um, that might be possible. But I think it's just beyond comprehension for yeah. humans. Yeah, yeah. So what's the practical? And maybe you should... Um, how can I explain to my friends and to like the society that we should think about the, like, what's the benefit? Yeah, of okay, yeah, I got it. But I think the problem is the way in which we train scientists uh, to be doctors. Doctoring is as much an art as a science. And unless we understand that, we produce bad doctors. And I don't think that anyone actually should be allowed to read medicine until they've got an earlier degree in something in the humanities, something like philosophy, which would make them question the automatic assumption that what they're looking at is a machine. They just get rather hurt if you say, but it's not a machine. Oh, what do you mean? That can't be the case. But 
look, if they knew the first thing about philosophy, they'd realize that they're making assumptions that they can't substantiate and that against which there are many good arguments. So, yes, let's re-educate doctors or change the way in which they're educated. I think that would be wonderful. But at the moment, stick to your guns and say what you believe in, because you'll find people respond to you. I have. Thank you. And your seven-year training program just began. I need to stop, I think, because I need to get a train. Yes. Mm. Uh, Ian, I promised we would end at 8.30, and indeed it is three minutes past. Thank you so much to you. Thank you for coming. Uh, And thank you to all for your questions. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.